0: Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this Bible study. We're grateful for another fine evening in the yard. Bless us in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Make sure that's on. Well, we're in the third week of the four-week series of the life of Abraham. First week we had a map. Last week we didn't. This week we have a map. Um, Not that it's that helpful to you. You can recognize Palestine, can't you? Mm -hmm. You guys have looked in the back of your Bibles when you were too bored to read and uh, looked at the... This is where Jesus went and stuff like that. Uh, Sea of Galilee, Dead Sea. Jerusalem's right about here. Egypt's down here. We'll get to that in a moment, if it doesn't fall over. Well, last week we had the birth, uh, the extra wife Hagar, the birth of Ishmael. The problems that that encounter uh, brought into Abraham's life. We skipped over chapter 19 because it's completely the story of Lot and Lot's family in Sodom and the destruction of Sodom. Now, I know that would be very exciting, but it's not part directly of the life of Abraham, and it fills the whole chapter, and so on to chapter 20. Now, if you remember correctly, Abraham has been at the Oaks of Mamre here east of Bethel, which is north of Jerusalem, no, excuse me, east of Hebron. It says east of Bethel in that tag, but I'm not there. The east of Bethel at the Oaks of Mamre right here, and down here, this sea wasn't filled at the time. It was the Valley of Siddam, uh, uh, and um, there were cities of the plain down there, and those were the ones destroyed, and eventually the, the Salt Sea of the Dead Sea filled that in. He's been there, and he journeys, it says in verse 1 here, toward the Negeb and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh is, if I can find it, I don't have a tag on it, um behind that. Uh, it's not there, it's not there. I should have looked this up. Well between oh here it is, Kadesh. It's this far down, Kadesh and Shur, which is out here. And then he goes up to Giar. Giar is right here, closer to the coast. The later on the five cities of the Philistines are down here. Um, And Giyar is essentially a Philistine city, even though we're dealing very early in history for the Philistines. Um, But we'll get to that in a moment. And he sojourned in Giyar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, You'll remember this, she is my sister. (laughs) Now, remember, he is 99 right now, she is 89. Ten years difference. She's still fine, he still fears for his life, and he has good reason to. But God uh, said, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Giyar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, this is one of my favorite verses, behold, you are a dead man. (laughs) That's a nice kind of dream to have, you're a king. God shows up and says, behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken for she is a man's wife now just like with Pharaoh this is a this weakness in Abraham's morality this selfishness this putting himself and his own life before his marriage before his wife's safety and sanctity um, is unthinkable in both cases Pharaoh and Abimelech both the pagans come out looking really good. Mm-hmm. They, they come out going, what? Listen to this. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said. Now, it didn't tell us that in Pharaoh's harem. Okay, it didn't inform you that. There's possi- said she took her as his wife, right? Right. It doesn't, it doesn't say, obviously, he's into the harem. The question is, did Pharaoh have his way with her? Very possibly, you know, with the text doesn't say, but here it says he had not approached her. It it makes it a a clear negative there. It seems like it might almost indicate that he had, in Pharaoh's case. Because yeah, I wouldn't want to bandy a woman's name about. Right. uh we're gentlemen I mean, here. With and so if it's a way of protecting the seed, then that would seem to make the. Uh, Again, it doesn't say. It's an argument from silence. We'd have to presume on the privacy of Pharaoh in his harem, Um, very possible. But uh, uh, And this is one reason you'd think so, is the negative remark here when it wasn't made before. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, wilt thou slay an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, oh, she's in on it too. He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. This is very like um, Jesus and Pilate. You know, where, you know, Pilate says to Jesus, Don't you know I have the power to release you or the power to kill you? And Jesus pretty much absolves Pilate of guilt when he says, The ones who handed me over to you have the greater sin. You're just doing your job. You, you, you have God vindicating Abimelech's integrity in this matter. He wasn't kind of suspicious that she was really his wife. But now that he knows, uh, it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now then, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, which is an interesting piece of information about Abraham. We don't generally consider Abraham one of the prophets, but in some way, given his communion with God in a series of things, and the things were prophesied about his own lineage, um, he would qualify. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, and all that are yours. Well, that first, behold, you were a dead man, got his attention. What's really disturbing, first off, this is disturbing because Abraham did it twice. And this, this gives you a human sense of Abraham's personal, you might say, uh, he doesn't mind going to war. He went to war against the kings of the, uh, 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 Mesopotamia. He, he's able to fight. He's probably used to blood. It's not a problem there. But there's something, um, you might say, emasculating about being killed for your wife. You know, she's my wife, Oh, but she's really good looking, so we're going to have to kill you. There's something very destabilizing about that way of dying. We don't know what his real thought is, but Abimelech has the the unique honor of being lied to twice by members of the same family. Mm. Chapter 26 here on the side verse 6 through 11. I think I have a Bible here. Genesis 26. And this is after Isaac has is grown up and gotten Rebekah. Verse 6. So Isaac dwelt in Gayar. Oh, same town. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me for the sake of Rebecca because she was fair to look upon. Said, Don't marry good-looking women, guys. Unless you already have. When he had been there a long time, living under this illusion, now nobody took her, nobody, nobody took her into their harem, but he lived in this community with them thinking she was his sister. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac fondling Rebecca, his wife you're not supposed to do to your sister. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? And it goes on from there. Same king, same town, same family, next generation, same lie. Now the difference about the lie that Abraham told and the one Isaac told, and it's getting a little frustrating for Abimelech, I imagine, um, is it was true-ish for Abraham. Because he goes after Abraham here. So Abimelech arose in the morning, called in his servants, and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What were you thinking of when you did this thing? I mean, the the writer of Genesis leads into this conversation. There's more than just uh, Abimelech complained to Abraham. On with the story. And Abraham blessed Abimelech, and on we go. And only quote the famous people, the good guys, the Jews. They're quoting Abimelech, his personal conversation with God. He's king of the Philistines. Hagan, and he reads Abraham the riot act on this matter. And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, I don't know if you know this, but that's illegal. It's true. I mean, Sarah was his sister, Um, but it gives you pause because I give you the reference here in Leviticus 18.9 and 2017, both of them ban this degree of consanguinity in marriage. Now, there are no Jews, there is no law, and there is no Moses yet, not for another 400 years. 400 years? Yeah, about 400 years. So that law was in place but it, but if you're going to study the question you have to look and say okay either even an immoral marriage stays a marriage you know say Abraham he came out of a pagan people he didn't know even the true god he's introduced to the true god and he, he becomes a follower of the true god and but all these practices are just just like him giving his wife away and taking Hagar as a concubine and all sorts of other things. Um, you just have to sort of write that off as, well, okay, these are the limits before the knowledge of the ethical law came. Or, because the ethical law is, does not include the levels of consanguinity. It may have been a health law. And that earlier in human history, when Adam and Eve were born and all their kids were born, they all had to marry their sisters. Thank you very much. That's all there were, with sisters. So, uh, it could be that the consanguinity uh, taboo is based on health and the Mosaic Law by the time you get to 1440 BC. It was too dicey to marry inside your group, that degree of uh, uh, closeness. But you just need to recognize that when he claims she's the, the, my sister by my father but not by my mother, that is specifically in the law forbidden. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Now, don't try to dig him out of this hole. There's no, Abimelech comes on him strong. God comes on Abimelech strong. Abimelech gets on Abraham. Abraham, is just asks him, so why did you do this awful thing? He tells him, with all of his motives right out there on the surface, looking for all the world like a complete cad. But you always remember that the righteousness of Abraham, like ours, is through faith. He is, he is made righteous, not because he is good enough in antiquity that some noble fellow walking around the ancient world six inches off the ground... God says, that's the guy for me. I'm going to make him one of mine. I'm going to make a people of God out of him. No, he found someone who believed his promises. And so believing his promises is credited to Abraham as righteousness. In spite of the fact that Abraham was a functional pagan and a pretty loose standards of how families run. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female slaves. And gave them to Abraham. And remember, he's under the. He's got God having taken a hit out on him He says, Unless you return her, lickety split, there's going to be dead Philistines around here. And so he just loads it up with presents slaves, livestock. Because there's a problem here that we perhaps, in Abraham's. When Abraham went to Egypt and gave her away. We sort of surmise there might be some problem with him going on to Egypt. There was no altar to the Lord built in Egypt. He had built altars to the Lord all the way down. And then, boom, he goes into Egypt, gives his wife away, gets her back, comes back to where his altars existed. Now he's, he's in a place where it is the promised land to him. Does it again. But there's a greater, there's a greater you might say, faith problem here. It's not just... He's got standards that maybe we should not emulate. The last study we had, God said, I'll be back here in a year, and you'll have a son. Now, you've been waiting since you were 75, 25 years, trying it out with Ishmael. How about this one, Lord? I know it's a cheap Japanese knockoff, but no offense to our cheap Japanese knockoffs here. But why can't Ishmael stand in in, in your favor? He's uh, had his mind on it. Twenty-five years in. Then God shows up at the potluck. It's as if three guys walked off the street. And you knew one of them was God, and the other two were angels. And they tell you, you having served this God, and they tell you, yes, your wife's going to be knocked up and have a kid by this time next year. What's the first thing you don't think of doing within that year? Giving your wife to some other man. And very likely, this is another argument along Jesse's line, that she probably had relations with Pharaoh, Without offspring, because it didn't really matter at that point. With Abimelech, God kept Abimelech from touching her because he had promised Abraham. Because if your wife hasn't been come back preggers after all those years together, you give her away for one night, she comes back pregnant, no one's going to believe it's Abraham's. Looks strangely like Abimelech. But he, this, is, th- this clearly handles that, you might say, crisis point in Abraham's faith. And I want you to be thinking in terms of, when we're looking at the faith of Abraham, we don't look at it and go, oh, and he failed in faith, so we get to fail in faith too. No, we're looking to him for the good parts, right? We're not going to try to pick up his bad examples. So he gives him a lot of livestock and stuff. And then he turns to Sarah in verse 15, 16 says, Behold, I have given your brother. It's kind of insulting. Because he I've given your brother, not your husband, your brother, a thousand pieces of silver. It is your vindication in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are righted. So that's a lot gathers a lot of money. And the guy is paying the situation down, so in no way does it look like Sarah. Does it look like Sarah uh, had had relations with Abimelech, especially since everybody is going to be noting this major nomadic king like Abraham, finally having a kid when he's 100 years old? And then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now I mentioned that this Abimelech was a Philistine. It says that in chapter 26, dealing with, doesn't call him a Philistine here, calls him the king of the Philistines in uh, 26. Now the Philistines don't show up as a large format uh, group until the 1200s. This is 18, late 1800s B.C., so 600 years from this point, which is a long time, 600 years down to this point, um, you will have the major Philistine invasion. The Philistines came with a number of other people out of the Black Sea region, Greece, um, uh, Asia Minor. And in 1200, the fall of the Hittite Empire up in Asia Minor was because of this migration of Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples came down the coast of the Levant uh, through Lebanon and, and Israel um, and then they tried to invade Egypt, were defeated by Egypt, and then kept sailing along North Africa. A group of them stayed in southern Palestine. We get the name Palestine from these guys. Um, uh, and they were called a tribe called the Peleset. And that's where the five lords of the Philistines are down here. But we know that the Peleset and there was a lot of other tribes in this migration. But again, it's 600 years after this point. But you've already had people like the Hittites mentioned. You've had other these groups that have been dating way back and a lot of these people had already come into the region. Uh, we have earlier inscriptions that some of the Sea Peoples fought as mercenaries for the Egyptians much earlier than the than the migration. So just in case you run across that distinction about Abimelech being Philistine long before the Philistines... the Philistines are a problem for David not for Abraham. You know it's a big problem late in um, uh, uh, patriarchal history after the judges. Um, But that's a side point for... Okay now verse chapter 21 The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And you notice I put those two things in bold, as he had said, as he had promised. Not because I think they're magical in the verse here, but they ought to be somewhat magical to your mind about what it is we're about in the study of Abraham. This is, faith is not believing in God. Okay? you are you know, not trying to get people to believe in God. Only an idiot doesn't believe in God. They have all different definitions of what he is, who he is. Everybody wants him to agree precisely with them. But that's not the point. When God speaks, do you believe him? When you believe God, it's faith. You must, of course, believe he exists. But you must believe that he rewards those who seek him. And that... You might say, believing in his promise, believing in his um, uh, his nature, what he declares as himself, that is faith. And so, when the Lord does as he had said, when the Lord did as he had promised, that's where it's sort of rich with the, the idea of what it is to be of the promise. Remember, the promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many descendants is a promise to us as Christians, not as Jews. Because we are the children of the promise. That's, that's the apostles' argument in, uh, in Romans and in Galatians and in Hebrews. Now, and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. It remembers that it had said, I'll be back in a year and you'll have a kid. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, and this is coming back to us all sorts of places, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. You get to wonder if Sarah has a great sense of humor. Remember when she was told back at the Oaks of Mamre? She laughed to herself and the Lord goes, You laughed? No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Abraham, when he was given the promise back in chapter 17, I think, he laughed to himself. This This whole thing is, you might say, impossible. The crows are starting to use phones. Um and i like I like the image because one thing it 's a word that is not used in the Old Testament much, ten times in Genesis and two other times in the old testament it's it's unique to this story almost <clears throat> it's mentioned so many times the laughter of these characters regarding things and there is an aspect of I don't believe it, but then she sleeps with her husband. She believes it, and she believes it an act. Now Hebrews here on the side, the left-hand side, Hebrews eleven eleven. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. We looked at that passage in Peter, first Peter. Where it says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. She was willing to, in, you might say she was reprimanded. Have you ever been reprimanded in the faith? You know, God looks at you and says, no, but you did laugh. Where you analyzed what you were thinking, when you were thinking, this is not, this is not possible. You went ahead and did what you were told to do. And God came back with great blessing on it. You end up considering, you know, people who feel guilty over their sins and they are told that they need to confess them. And they, oh, come on, is that going to do anything? Really? Honestly? So you read them a verse, we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. I promise, okay, I'll confess my, for heaven's sake. And the joy of the Lord returns and you're just in great peace. And so you like Sarah, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. Even though she's hot at 89, 90 now, she's past menopause. Maybe just a few weeks. And she was always barren. Okay, Even when she was young and hot, she was barren. This is a great and, you know, when we were young and Leslie was struggling with uh, the possibility of being barren and, and we, we even spoke in biblical terms like that. I think I said in Raising Arizona didn't she say uh, I'm barren. Being barren is hard. A woman has to wrap her head around it. And Sarah had been dealing with this to the point of giving her handmaid to her husband to have an artificial kid. And God finally comes through with what he promised against all, against all odds. There's a looking forward to something. The Hebrews passage that we just read out of goes on to talk about Abraham a little bit. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead. Okay, he's only 100. He lives till he's 175. But everybody knows, come on, you're not, you're not cranking kids out anymore. Him as good as dead. We're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it and greeted it from afar. Now what's interesting here is we tend to think of Isaac. He's the child of the promise. But he's really the child of the possibility of the promise. Because the promise wasn't primarily, you're going to have a kid, is you're going to have a kid because I promised you'd be the father of multitudes. And it really was, interestingly enough, it really wasn't Isaac's birth, it was Abraham's faith that made him the father of multitudes and the father of those who would be saved by faith. There was more... We are looking, when we look at the Christian promise, which is not that all of you will be father of multitudes, the Christian promise is forgiveness of sins and life eternal. You've got the the, the freedom from being carrying your guilt around because God, the one person you've offended, has let it go on the blood of Jesus Christ. And the regular cleansing of you and the making you a good person for his sake. And then life eternal, which you have not yet received. All these died in faith, not having received what was promised, and having seen it greeted it from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. One of the things we learn about Abraham in this personalness, even his laughter when he shouldn't, her laughter when he shouldn't, her laughter when she should, all those personalnesses and his conversation with God, And we we found out last week, was it the passage in uh, Galatians 4, he was called a friend of God? We had a, a question at Wine, Wisdom, and Song about, is it possible to be a friend of God? Well, it is for Abraham, he was called a friend of God. But here it says, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Something has happened in you, something measurably Valuable happens in you through faith. Now it gets a little ugly again. Who thought Sarah's going to have a kid? child grows up, gets weaned. Have a big party on the day she's weaned, verse eight, verse nine. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, who was about 14, whom she had born to Abraham, playing with her son Isaac playing is in bold Galatians 4 here on the left- hand side says now we brethren like Isaac are children of promise but as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who is born according to the spirit so it is now Paul uses the term persecuted the the Septuagint Greek version of the Old Testament, uh, uses the word sported. The word can mean all sorts of things. It can mean laughing. It can mean no offense or no, no blush intended. Fondling. It was the word used when Abimelech saw um, Isaac fondling his wife. The word is laughing. The same word. He was laughing with his wife. If you know what I mean. Same word. And interestingly enough, here the same word too. Playing is laughing. The same as it was for Sarah a couple verses earlier. Same as it was for Abraham when he laughed. Same as it was at the Oaks of Mamre. Same word. Sometimes it's euphemistically sexual. Sometimes it's just comedy. Sometimes it's um, mockery, making fun of. And it seems that at least Paul in Galatians is suggesting that Ishmael's older brother, Humor, was testing maybe not Isaac's patience, but Isaac's mother's patience. We know that. She didn't like to see what was happening. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the saying was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, Ishmael, as he's talking about. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the lad and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your descendants be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. I was emailing a guy a couple days ago about Romans um, and how uh, Paul makes the argument in Romans 9 about that the scent from Abraham is not fleshly, Because if it were, Esau would be first in line, not Jacob. But Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We see You might say collateral goods going to Ishmael. He is not the child of the promise, but he is a child of Abraham. Now in the passage out of Galatians that we were just looking at here on the side, according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now. But what does the scripture say? And it quotes Sarah, cast out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. It quotes, you might say, Sarah almost almost prophetically. Now Sarah, in the moment, in the 1800s BC, is probably being a biatch, okay? About stuff, other women. You know, I know she's 90, I know she looks good. But that Egyptian chick, man. And we don't know what the relationship Abraham had physically with his harem was but uh, Sarah's not in the greatest of moods but God is willing to let that stand even though she asked for something really displeasing and you could, you could sympathize in this case with Abraham though you don't sympathize with him in other situations but he's told not to be displeased the slave woman is given much now I was thinking about this and I don't think it's teaching this but I think it's something to be reminded of In Galatians, the slave woman and her descendants are considered to be the Jews. It sort of flips the allegory, the direction you didn't expect it to be going. The pagan, Gentile slave woman is considered to be the symbol of the Jews, and Sarah, the free woman, is considered to be the mother of the Christians. Those who are part of the promise by faith and part of the promise by flesh. And so Hagar's fleshly relationship not the promise. It says here, Sarah. The Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. Isaac's birth is a combination of Sarah's faith. Says that in Hebrews 11:11, 11, 11, by faith Sarah herself received power. It was the faith was working, and God bringing about the promise. But it doesn't even. Because a lot of Christians have a hard time going. Well, what about? Aren't we supposed to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? Stuff like that. Or aren't the Jewish people really special? Okay. Yeah, they are, but the, the limits are according to the scriptures. But just like Ishmael, just like Hagar's descendants, he favors her because the descendants of Abraham. That's true with the, uh, the Jews as well. It's the uh, Romans, I have the passage here Romans 9. 4 and 5. Let's see if I got it. They are Israelites, and to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. Amen. And yet, that did squat. It is really of no value to be a Jew. It's of, it's to be honored. It's to be, it fulfilled God's, you might say, secondary purposes in his promise, that their genetics would have a good, the genetics provided a people out of which the Messiah would be born. And those people who they rebelled against God throughout, they were given the promises, they were given the prophets, they were given the oracles of God. So like Hagar, they are given many good things. He would be made a nation, but not not the one that was promised, not the one that was central. Now, at this point, Hagar gets run out of dodge um, for the second time. Remember, she did when she was pregnant, and now she's have a, a teenage son. She gets given a skin of water and a loaf of bread, and off she goes. You know, it's... I don't know what the divorce rules were like for concubines, but obviously not very um, uh, promising. She wanders until she runs out of food and water. They're dying of thirst in the desert. And it says, um, (coughs) when the water of the skin was gone, verse 15, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down over against him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look upon the death of the child. How do we know this? I mean, oh, given the distances. She's, she's. oh, it gives away the story. It works out. Hagar doesn't die. Kid doesn't die. But, I, but the anecdote is great. The, and I want to encourage you. I did, I think, last week a bit about thinking of your relationship with the maker of heaven and earth with the kind of responsiveness the kind of responsiveness that that uh, that God has to us. You don't have to follow Hagar any further. But Hagar comes back into the story somehow and tells somebody the Ishmaelites come down through history and are with us to this day because of Hagar surviving. And she told somebody that it was about a bow shot away. She left the kid under a bush, dying of thirst. And the child wept. Let me not look upon the death of the child. And she sat over against him. The child lifted up his voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. (coughs) It reminds you of that situation in Christ's ministry. Um, Their angels always behold the face of the Father. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Out in the desert near Beersheba, somewhere out here, she's dying of thirst. It's a great place to die of thirst because this is a photograph. This is a photograph, Mm. not a map. So, it looks pretty dry. Now this is probably recent, but Nonetheless, dry in the desert. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. I like the fact that the promise is always this great leap forward. Great nation, I've got to get out of the desert. But he's told to hold him by the hand. Go back, you've sat a bow shot away, don't want to hear the kid die. He says, go back, hold his hand, you stick with him, and your the, your promise will be fulfilled. Then God opened her eyes, she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water, and gave the lad a drink, and God was with the lad, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness, and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. The Lord was with him. Just because he's Ishmaelite does not mean that they're by nature pagan. She's been spending years in Abraham's tents. Whatever is known of God, there's no priesthood, there's no temple, there's no rules. But they've been serving the high God, and God, the high God, is with him. Now, in verse 22 down through verse 34 is where Abimelech and uh, Abraham have a political bump over some wells, um, and they want to have a good relationship. It's very Middle Eastern about the negotiation, Um, um, and some Abimelech's people took some of Abraham's wells, and so Abimelech gets complaints, and he goes, oh, I hadn't heard about this, and and so Abraham gives a bunch of sheep and oxen to Abimelech in verse 27, and then he sets seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech goes, okay, wait, what are they doing over there? You're giving me all these livestock. Why those over there? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that you may be a witness for me that I dug this well. I want to have this specifically mean that contracts were not easy to write up in a sandy place um, without paper, without clay tablets, whatever. These seven (coughs) ewe lambs are what they mean is we have this well. Therefore the place was called Beersheba, which means the well of the sevenfold oath. That's what Beersheba means. What's interesting is Beersheba is there today. Beersheba right here. Uh, Big crossroads. Major city, World War I. They made a movie about the siege of Beersheba called uh, The Light Horseman. It was an Australian film. Very good movie. But uh, Beersheba's been a notable town since Abraham and Abimelech founded it under the Sevenfold Oath um, in 18-something BC. 18. He's 100. He was born in 1952, so 1852. Yeah, 1852 thereabouts. Now, Abimelech has cleared the decks. He's dwelling as a sojourner in the land of the Philistines, the land of Canaan. Canaanites are different than Philistines. Canaanites are Phoenicians. Philistines are a different people um, entirely. After these things, chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now, there's going to be some aspect to this testing that I want you to ask yourself the question: When a test is coming, the answer is for someone, right? Yeah. You get tested, and you find out when you get it. When a professor gives you the test, is the te- is the professor hoping that you will find out the answer to these things? No, he's finding out if. He's going to find out if you know the answer to these things. That's what he's finding out. He's testing for him, not testing for you. Some professors look at tests as learning experiences. Fine. But eventually, it comes back to the teacher's desk so he could find out if you know what you're supposed to know. And he said to him, Abraham, he said, here am I. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. let Let me refresh your memory. Whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you, the end." That's all I'm asking, is that you kill this kid. Now, this is quite a bit into Isaac's life. He's a young man. But you got a whole bunch of ethical things staring you in the face. Are commands to kill your kids okay when God gives them? What about God cannot be tempted to evil and he himself tempts no one? Got a problem there, too. Things to answer, but not tonight. The interesting thing down in Beersheba, he says, go to the mount- mountains or the country of Moriah, and then on a mount there, that I will point out to you, you will sacrifice your kid. That name is only occurs one other time in the Old Testament, in Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, where God tells Solomon to build the temple on Mount Moriah, which at the top of which David had bought the threshing floor of Arunah. And uh, Solomon built the temple there. Now, I don't know if it's the same place. We're not entirely sure, even though these are the only two places the word is mentioned. Um, It's the country of Moriah and Mount Moriah in Chronicles. But we know that Abraham rose early in the morning, so had his ass, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, cut wood. Verse 4, on the third day... It's about three days from here to Jerusalem. This is a scale of miles. That's that's forty. So it looks like it's about maybe fifty miles. You're walking with a donkey. You could do it in three days. But there's very you have to say, well other other places, it could be other other mountains, but it's an intriguing thing it's never mentioned again it's never pointed out in the New Testament this, if you make this speculation you're making it you know, with as little information as I gave you that the temple of God ends up being built in Jerusalem on the site or near the site where Abraham offered his son Isaac and then when Christ comes into the temple in um, the New Testament all of that's happening at the same site so there could be But again, you think, well, if that was happening, wouldn't somebody have mentioned it smarter than you, Evan? Yeah, somebody would have. So take that as a warning. So Isaac doesn't know what's going on. He leaves the servants behind, verse 5. Stay here with the ass. I and the lad will yonder and worship and come back to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, which lets you know something about their technology of lighting fires. So if you get one started, you don't let it go out. You carry it around with you all the time, in some form. So they both, w- both went, went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am so my son. He said, behold, the fire, the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Because he already has. Isaac is the burnt offering. Now, is that my phone? It's yours. We can just break it. Um, You say, does Abraham think he's going to do it? You know the story. You know he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it because he goes right up to the edge, builds the altar, stacks the wood, ties up his son, throws him on top of the wood, hauls out the knife... And God says, okay, all right, joke's over. Now, we know that Abraham planned to do it. Because God, one, believes that he was going to do it. Because what does he find out? Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God believes that he's going to kill him. God believes that he's going to kill him. Abraham believes he's going to kill him, because in Hebrews 11, in the right-hand column, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises, he had believed to be reckoned righteous before, he believed these promises so totally, was ready to offer up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your descendants be named. His son hasn't had any descendants yet. He's trotting them off three days' journey to sacrifice him, which generally gets in the way of fecundity, which is a polite word for bearing children. Because, verse 19, he considered that God was able to raise men even from the dead. His faith went past arguing. He wasn't arguing with God. He wasn't negotiating with him. It wasn't a matter of... You might say his laughter back when he was promised to be father of multitudes. He'd been trying to have babies with that woman. you don't have any history here. He just steps right into it. He says, oh, I'll sacrifice him. You'll have to come to grips with whether or not sacrificing a child, which the people did to Molech and the other awful gods. Um, that was evil. Would you stop and you say, was it evil because it was Molech and it wasn't Yahweh? And if they did it to Yahweh, why would that be bad? Well, God didn't ask for that. He makes that clear. I think in Jeremiah, he said, I never even thought of such a thing, that you would sacrifice your kids. Now, you still have to deal with it in your free time, of course. But we go back to that question. God tested Abraham, Hebrews. When he was tested, who finds out something? Abraham doesn't go, oh, golly, I don't believe it. I passed the test, it's great, I got a good grade. No, God says, now I know. Now I know. Now look at your own faith. We so often, the testing of our faith does do things that we're benefited by, no no question asked. The New Testament refers to that. But it also informs God as to whether you're faithful. Because we can claim all the faith in the world until James tells you, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. We, God got shown Abraham's faith. Short message from God, kill your kid. I don't think he explained it to Sarah on the way out, or to the young men, or to his son, He just was operating knowing it was God. He knew the voice of God. And there's a ram caught in the bushes. He's offered as a sacrifice. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the Mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. This is important because the writer of Hebrews goes back to this down here at the bottom. And it's sort of, uh, before we get to that, this James passage I just gave you a comment on, faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. We don't get to verbally claim, sign a document, join a church, say that yeah I agree with that over there. Faith has to be able to step into the promises of God without question though you're a dead man itself or past the ways of women, whatever the promise is, you believe God. You don't go well I don't like Pascal's wager for that reason because what's his name? Blaise? Blaise Pascal? I once called him René It's Rene Descartes, isn't it? Blaise Pascal, Rene Descartes. Blaise Pascal had that, Pascal's famous wager, if you just believe and we're right, you go to heaven. If you just believe and you're wrong, you just have a good life. That's not good enough. Your faith just got tested and was found wanting. You were just going, I kinda, maybe, we'll gamble. Yeah, you find out whether you believe when you stand to suffer for your God when your faith calls you to account. Verse uh, 21 of James 2, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? It points right to this moment. And it quotes, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right below that. And he was called the friend of God. Remember back here, God is not ashamed to be called their God. We want this kind of relationship of faith with God, that God believes our faith, because God's the one who saves you. You do not, no matter how much faith you can manage to come up with, ain't going to do squat. The strength of your mind uh, uh, waves are not going to do anything. But when God believes it's faith, He's not ashamed to call Himself your God. He's not he steps forward and finds that the test has come through for you. And he swears, it says, by himself. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says in regard to that, oh, I gave you the two little quotes in Chronicles and Isaiah down the bottom of the right about where it calls Abraham his friend. Just because it's, it mentioned that he's called a friend of God and it's good to know where he was called a friend of God. The writer of Hebrews says, For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work. This is Hebrews 6. If you've ever been in discussions about can you lose your salvation as a Christian, you've been in Hebrews 6. Okay. So just wrapping this up. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and love which you have showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Okay, so your instruction is to pick up an earnestness, the same earnestness, and imitate the faith. Because on the other end of the faith is a promise, and it says in verse 13, he had no one greater to swear by. He swore by himself. Back in verse 16 of chapter 22, by myself I have sworn. God swearing on, it, not a stack of Bibles, but swearing on himself. It says, there is nothing more holy than me. I swear on me. Thus Abraham, having patiently endured, obtained the promise. Men indeed swear by a greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that is we, the unchangeable character of his purpose, that's his promise, he interposed with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things, and you've got to keep track, the writer of Hebrews is not always parsable easily two unchangeable things in which it is impossible that God should prove false, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope that is set before us. Our faith in God towards our salvation is rooted in a promise that is all about the story of Abraham. It occurs in the story of Abraham and where God swears on himself, himself and the oath he takes. Unchangeable things. That's the promise to you. The promise to Abraham was equivalent. It was credited to him as righteousness when he believed. He became the father of all of us with faith. Um, So it's not God who's on the line here. So when God tested Abraham, (coughs) he wanted to know what Abraham was up to in faith. Court low still messing up in this situation he believed God that's a you might say a remarkable guarantee for us and it says here at the end of the Hebrews passage we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order Of Melchizedek then in chapter 7 he goes into that discussion we covered two weeks ago about Melchizedek there's a thread that's going on here the pattern of Abraham's life giving tithes to the greater thing Melchizedek Christ's identification with Melchizedek as a priest the temple Mount Moriah possibly all sorts of things that I don't want to you know graph it out on a chart or anything like that but there is a great and greatly declared mystery for the ages that this faith, this God, this promise given to the Gentiles, that's you guys has been rooted in time all the way back to 18, 1900s BC as an anchor of the soul in the inner shrine behind the curtain where Christ has gone before us well That's that, except for next week, which will be Italian Italian at the potluck. And for those of you who are listening on the internets, too bad. (laughs) Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you very much for your promises. We'd ask that as we are tested in faith, it comes back to you that we believe. In your son's name, amen.